You are listening to the Happy Mama Village, a podcast for mamas, about mamas, and by mamas. Brian and Annie are both certified professional life coaches, passionate about empowering mamas to live wholehearted lives, find purpose in the mundane, and embrace feeling lit from within. Brian's expertise is working with women going through or recovering from a divorce, loss, or breakup. Annie is an expert in helping families thrive through shifts in mindset and parenting techniques. If you are feeling overwhelmed and unseen and are wanting to take you and your family beyond the status quo, this podcast is for you. We are so happy you are here. Welcome back to another week at the Happy Mama Village. We are your hosts, Annie Henderson and Brian Zielinski. Today is part two of our series on seeing black in America with Brock Jones. Here at the Happy Mama Village, we discuss all things pertaining to happy mamas, like relationships, parenting, self-care, mama tips, having the hard conversations, and so much more. Today, we are joined by Brock Jones. Brock is an African-American husband, father, preacher, pastor, sorry, preaching pastor, musician, we forgot to mention that one last time, and president CEO of Transform Us Movement, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults to use their unique talents to serve their communities and bring reconciliation to our world. In part one, we discuss the events currently taking place in this country following the death of George Floyd. Brock, you said towards the end of that episode that this issue is bigger than George Floyd. It's bigger than one man. Because of that, we wanted to have you back to talk about systemic racism and what that even means. First, before we dive into the deep end of the pool, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, welcome, ladies. Welcome. Good morning. So yeah. glad to have you back. I was glad to be back. It's a beautiful morning, too, man. It's going to be a good day. Awesome. Um, and um, any feedback from the first episode or interesting interactions for you since we spoke last uh yeah great great feedback from those who uh, who tuned in and checked it out I, sh- I shared the link with a with a few people via text and uh, even social media and man lots of shares lots of engagement I think people are really wanting to, to hear conversations like this um, one of the, my biggest takeaway from what I heard is the fact that with it being such a sensitive topic, the fact that um, you guys, ladies, that y'all were genuine and um, very concerned, but very uh, uh, wanting to be in the know uh, without being offensive or without being, uh, you know, kind of like putting on a show. It was a genuine reach out to want to learn and grow. And I think that's very important. But also um, they said the fact that we were all passionate that they could tell that we all cared, that we all were frustrated, but wanting to get to a solution and that we had a conversation that was passionate, but it didn't, it didn't turn into what could sometimes turn into arguing or right or wrong or pointing fingers. It was more just an expression of concern and like, Hey, how can we work together to fix this? And I think that's my biggest takeaway is that that's what's healthy and that's what's needed. Yes. Yeah. Being open to listen and not, yeah, not putting your walls up instantly just when you mm-hmm. assume someone might be on the other side. Because I, I think we're all, we all ultimately want the same thing. And then we get all caught up on labels and like what, whatever media sometimes can lead us to. Right. So thank right. you. Thanks for being yes, here ma'am. again. Oh, yes. Yes. It's my pleasure. 
Yes, loved loved the conversation. I mean, I always love talking to you, but but I really really loved um, that that la- our last episode. So so since then, I've been researching and doing my homework. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I've done more for this episode than any other episode we've had, and I'm super excited about having this conversation. Even though it's gonna it's gonna be another tough one. Um, it's going to be tough to talk about some of this stuff, but it may also be hard for people to hear as well Mm -hmm. when they're listening. So I want to start by giving a brief timeline on how systemic racism was created in America. So I'm going to like run through, um, some key points, some steps that led us from the inception all the way until now, um, because it's not as simple as African-Americans used to be slaves. Like it goes so far beyond that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to run through the steps and then we'll kind of go back and and discuss. And Brian, so, can I say something yeah. real quick to our, li- to our listeners? Sure. Okay. All right, listeners. I, I feel like we have a an awesome batch of listeners that definitely are right there with us. But if you're listening today and something triggers you or you have questions, we urge you to go ahead and finish the rest of the episode, reach out, ask questions, let's have a conversation. Um, Because when you're triggered, sometimes that's just you're, you're hearing something and maybe you're uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's wrong. So listen, open your heart. And um, I know Brian has, and Brock have some amazing things to share today. And Danny. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Okay. All right. So in 1619, the first blacks landed in the New World as slaves. In 1640, John Punch was an African who escaped with a Dutchman and a Scotchman from the Virginia colony. All three men were indentured servants. They were quickly caught. The Dutchman and the Scotchman got four additional years of servitude as punishment, but the African slave is given perpetual servitude. At the time, landowners needed a consistent labor force, and if the labor force kept banding together and trying to escape and revolt, then that wasn't good for business. So by giving the white workers an advantage over the black counterparts, they ensured their allegiance. This created a multi-class system. Give poor whites additional benefits so they don't all rebel together with the blacks. This was a system of divide and conquer by the rich in order to keep their power. In 1682, the Virginia House of Burgesses passes a law limiting citizenship to European people only. Virginia was giving away land at the time and needed to be certain that it stayed in the hands of white men. In 1691 is the first documented case of the word white as opposed to European or English. The law said you couldn't marry outside of your race and or you would be banned for life from the state of Virginia. In 1705, the Virginia slave laws made it legal to use deadly force against your slaves, and it made it illegal for free blacks to own or employ whites. In 1790, the first census was created and taken and was spearheaded by slave owner and future president Thomas Jefferson. 
there were only five categories of people. Instead of being categorized by nation of origin, which had been the practice, the census categorized people differently. White males over 16, white males under 16, white females, all other free persons, and enslaved people. And the enslaved people only counted as three-fifths of a person. Also in 1790 was the Naturalization Act, which stated only free whites can be naturalized citizens of the United States. White became the national identity. Rights of citizenship include voting, landowning, due process, and starting business, etc. At this point in our history, systemic racism is beginning to gain steam. It's becoming institutionalized. White men in power who were shaping our young country begin to wall off whiteness for their benefit, for their own power. In 1785, the Land Ordinance Act is passed in Washington, which put land formerly belonging to Native Americans into white hands. The men forming the country in its early stages were creating a nation of white landowners. The Land Ordinance Act was also led by Thomas Jefferson. 1862, the Homestead Act, which meant settlers could claim land for free in the West, but you had to be a citizen. And free people of color were not citizens. It's not a coincidence that we are now considered a white nation. It was systematically planned and executed. In 1865, the Civil War ended and the 13th Amendment was added to the Constitution freeing slaves. And I'm using air quotes here because we're going to come back to this one later. Jumping forward 60 or so years, in 1924, under the Racial Integrity Act, the one-drop rule took effect, meaning if you had one drop of African blood, you were not white. The act designated and solidified who was allowed to be on top and who wasn't, a system of advantage based on race. It's all about keeping power and the rich white men wanted to keep power for themselves. They wanted the advantage. In 1929, FDR created the New Deal. The Federal Housing Administration was created to make it easier for lower-income families to own homes, but lenders began using redlining to keep people of color from gaining home loans. Redlining is the act of refusing to loan to people in areas deemed to be a poor financial risk. Between 1933 and 1962, the Federal Housing Administration provided home and business loans, but 98% of those loans went to white people. Again, a system of advantage for whites. In 1935, the Social Security Administration was created. When it was first created, it excluded domestic and agricultural workers, which meant two-thirds of blacks were excluded from receiving Social Security benefits until the 1950s. In 1944, the GI Bill of Rights was created to send veterans returning from war to college. The problem was, in 1944, there weren't very many universities available to African Americans because the country was still segregated which meant black veterans didn't have the same number of colleges to choose from. There were only a few black colleges 
as opposed to hundreds of white universities. The GI Work Program also helped set veterans up in jobs similar to those in the military. But because of the racist structure of the military at the time, that meant that whites became welders, engineers, builders, while blacks became dishwashers and janitors. Again, a system of advantage for whites. So that's the end of my timeline. <laughs> <laughs> and that's systemic racism, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a great podcast. <laughs> you guys go and uh, <laughs> that's funny. Good job, good job, Brian. <laughs> so that was a mouthful, but um, okay. So let's let's start with the last one. Let's start with the GI Bill. Okay. And my grandfather uh, served in World War II, and he he went to college using this GI Bill. He was sent to college. He went to TCU, and he became an engineer, and he went on to invent some oil tools, and he owned several companies. So that, that was the trajectory of his life because of this bill. Mm. But if you were a black man, a black veteran coming back, from World War II, there were only like three or four black colleges at the time. Right, right. Yeah, HBCUs uh, is what is the term historically black um, college universities. Uh, there were very few. There's more now, but back then there were very few. And obviously, back in those days, uh, it was really unheard of for you know, a black man to be able to just walk right in and, and and apply and get welcomed into a white university. Yes. Um, and so there was a lot of veterans who were trying to further educate themselves so they can get jobs and, and get better employment so they could take care of their families after serving in the war and fighting for this country. And the very bill that was signed to pass to help these veterans do that they were discriminated against and didn't really have access. I think it was only like one fifth, if I'm not mistaken, like one fifth of black veterans who applied for like educational benefits and things of that nature. Only one fifth of them even got like a response Gosh. back. Wow. And, uh, you know, you can think about the hundreds of thousands of, of African-Americans who fought in that war and only a fifth of them even got a chance to even try to take it that don't even mean that they even got accepted they just got a response back you know wow like think about how 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 that how much that set them back in trying to further their position in life um coming out of this war and probably already facing all the other what 12 or 13 things you listed this was like number what like i don't even know this is like the <laughs> bottom after you, after you listed like 12 or 13 other things this is like the 14th thing and this is not even working for them. And they're already trying to deal with all the other right. issues that are going on, you know? Right. Right. And what a difference that made compared to their white counterparts, both having served in the war, both coming back, trying to better their lives. Mm -hmm. And, and the difference is just remarkable, remarkably bad. Right. <laughs> 
Right, right. And this was at the time when, you know, a college education had a lot more weight than it does now. Right. You know, so being able to be educated on a higher level and go and apply for a job would would increase your likelihood of getting a job, but also your salary and your positioning and all those things. So to to, to not be able to have that and uh, and be able to do that on an equal playing field, think how much that that um that that created the the further imbalancing the the wealth and, and economic status of white America versus black America. You know, the buying power, the financial power, um, all of those things shape this nation and shape kind of like, you know, positions of what I can do in this country and what I can't do. Annie, do you have any questions? Oh, I've got days worth of questions. <laughs> um, so so like Brian, I, I this weekend we, we watched um, 13th because I know you had mentioned that last time. Or maybe I had mentioned uh-huh. someone else mentioning it, and y'all were like, "Yes, watch that one." <laughs> so I watched that one, and oh, just, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm gonna have to go back and watch it like a few more times to even begin to grasp a lot of it because it just went through the decades. I know Brian stopped at 1944, but it went all the way up until now, um, and mm-hmm. it was I I took the quote um, from President Nixon's. Um, it was his domestic policy chief. Um, and if y'all don't mind, I'll mm. read. I'll just give you the gist of it. No, I won't. I'll just read it. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it says, you you want to know what this was really all about. Ehrlichman, who died in 1999, said, referring to Nixon's declaration of war on drugs. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know what we were? Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that was just one one of so many quotes and points going through all the decades of it that that just kind of hit me that you know it's very strategic. It might look one way, and if calculated, yeah, if you watch the evening news and that's your only source, and you don't do your own research or listen, then it's gonna seem like it's it's very legit and it makes sense. But um, it just it just blows my mind. Right. What 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 do y'all think about? So let me, if, if I can reverse the role nah. real quick, like when you read that, like what what comes to mind when you think about that in relation to the lives of those individuals that are being targeted like that, you know, which in, in this case is what was it the the anti war left and the and the black community as mm-hmm. a whole, like like what what do y'all think about that if when it comes to what they were trying to do what the government was trying to do. I think it's just wild Hmm. that it comes from like the very, the very, very top, like, yeah, attacking drugs. (laughs) That that makes sense. But when there's like a a purpose behind it, that is like she said, more calculated. And that's um, like, it, it it blows my mind. What do you, what do you think, Brian? It, 
it's it's disheartening. I mean, to say disheartening that isn't even, I think, even begin to sum it up. It it makes, in in a way, it makes me feel used. You know, like mm-hmm. like middle class white people, I think, have been used as a tool. Not that we're not responsible. We we are responsible, but it re, going doing this research and going through this timeline. It was calculated by the people at the top, the rich, the landowners, the the men in Washington, you know, all the the forefathers that we want to praise and hail as these great men. Mm. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. I'm I'm struggling a little bit with that, honestly, and and right. we can kind of talk more about that later, but. It it makes me sick to my stomach to think that it was that calculated because it does. It sounds plausible. It sounds, oh, war on drugs. Yeah, everybody's against drugs, or most people <laughs> are against drugs. You know, right? Most right. people are against crime. You know, and right. so they've manipulated us. Very, right. you know, it was very calculated. They manipulated us to to believe the story they wanted to tell. And the story they wanted to tell kept their ass in the White House. It kept them mm-hmm. in power. It kept mm-hmm. them rich. It kept them um, making the rules. And we've all been, I mean, we've been used. Y'all have been abused, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's just, right. It, it makes me ill, you know, to think that it was yeah. that calculated. Yep, yep. And and that's, that. A calculation and that war, you know, what I mean like a war on drugs. You think about the word war. That means like we're trying to mm-hmm. destroy something. We're trying to take over something. We're trying to defeat something. So the war on drugs, specifically, what they said was it was a war on blacks. Mm-hmm. It's basically right. what they were saying. And so if you can rally a whole country through the through the the medium of media and technology to say, you know, I mean, just say no to drugs or dare, dare to keep your children out of drugs. Y'all remember those commercials? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Mm -hmm. Any questions, you know, all these things. And then during that time period, they had all those shows begin to come out Mm -hmm. like cops, you know, I mean, America's most wanted and all these types of things where they're portraying these, these, these good guys, right? These good guys, these heroes, patrolling the black neighborhoods and kicking in doors and like attack, you know, attacking black people and catching the bad guys, catching the drug dealers and throwing them in jail. Like a lot of that stuff, like you just said, it was calculated and systematic. Um, Let's be honest here. There's drugs used in, in white communities all around the world. They weren't kicking down the doors of the wall street they you were know, not. guys they were not on, on down, cocaine. No, they you were know. not kicking down the doors of the of the the politicians and the business owners and the white families that are at home snorting lines of cocaine and saying, "Hey, this is a war on drugs. Everybody's included." No, they're kicking down. They're going into poor, impoverished communities where some of the things we just talked about: lack of education, lack of opportunities to get in college, financial uh, disparities between economic disparities. Uh, places where a lot of, you know, and this is not, I'm not excusing this behavior, but I'm just stating, you know, the condition of these particular areas, these urban areas. When they see a guy who, 
who took some drugs and made, you know, five, six thousand dollars. They're like, wow, I, I can't even get a job at McDonald's or, or Subway. And this guy just rolled up in a in a Lexus and he has money and that nice clothes and he's able to do things and they get sucked into this this lifestyle. Now they're getting sucked into a lifestyle uh, potentially where there's a war on it and it's it's uh, it's systematically designed to capture and incarcerate that particular individual at a higher rate, at a more stronger sentence rate um, than their white counterparts. And everybody that's using that particular drug uh, is not just black, but it's mm-hmm. white people. It's, it, you know, the majority. But there's just a war on the African-American community. Well, and, and this is not a uh, Republican versus Democrat, I mean, issue. I mean, Nixon was mm-hmm. Republican, but Clinton was a Democrat. And it was mm-hmm. his administration that created the tough laws against marijuana use versus or crack, I'm sorry, against crack users versus the white collar cocaine users. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They changed the law, the, uh, the sinning scene. So it's the same drug. It's just it's just man it's just manifested differently. It's practically the same drug, and they treated one they treated one harsher than the other. Cocaine and crack, exactly. pretty much the same substance. Because one uh, is one, white men is one and one is black. One you one you one of them you snort, and the other one they smoke it. But it's the same, basically the same drug. It's just okay. Well, if you get caught with this crack, which is kind of a, a cheaper form or more whatever poor form or whatever you want to call it or label it. Hey, there's harsher punishment for that because this is what the African-American community is using. But cocaine has a lighter sentence and that's primarily what the white Americans drug choice uh, is. And so there's a difference being made and that punishment was far more severe, even though it was pretty practically the same drug. Yeah. The fact that they differentiated that just shows it shows a lot like it's it's practically the same thing but yeah who's using it and why they wanted to focus on it wasn't a war on all drugs right mm-hmm. and that's systematic right. that's yeah. this that's the systematic that's a system that's not a coincidence that's not a, yeah that's not a coincidence that's not a you know hey i really you know i really don't like black people thought process and then you just go about your way you know what I mean? Like, it's a thought like, I, I really don't prefer black people. Man, that's just a thought in my head. It's no like, hey, I really want to set this people group back. I really want to make sure that this group doesn't prosper. I want to make sure that this group is held down. Let's create something to make to make that come to life. And then they create it. So, so Brock, I want to challenge you on this. And because... And what you just said, I'm not denying that at all. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if it's almost the reverse is that it wasn't so much about hating a particular group. It was about keeping their power. Like, how can we keep ourselves elevated, you know, Mm -hmm. to where we keep the advantage in order to do that? We have to oppress other people of color all people of color mm-hmm. does that make sense do you think it's kind yeah, of a little not, bit of no, both or no I, I would say it's both because obviously the 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 initial onslaught of of taking this land was to exhort the power over the people who were here and to take what they wanted and so it was kind of like i don't think they necessarily hated native americans 
you know, Europeans didn't hate them, but they just saw an opportunity to uh, to exercise their power over this group and take what they wanted. And then and that just kind of continued. And that kind of just <laughs> snowballed into, well, let's continue taking what we wanted. Maybe that gave them the confidence to think like, hey, man, you know, we're the superior with the superior race, maybe. And uh, let's continue to try to exercise our, our, our position of power over everybody we encounter. So I think this is a good this is a good place to talk about the 13th Amendment. And okay. and Annie, since you just watched Thirteenth, um, you'll I know that you'll want to weigh in on this. So we all know the Thirteenth Amendment is you know freeing freeing blacks, and uh, but there was a loophole in the amendment that did allow for a form of slavery, prisoners. So if you had been convicted of a crime and you were in prison, you could be used as a slave, basically slave labor. So the loophole was used as a tool for the rich and powerful. In the South especially, slavery had been an integral part of their economic system. I mean, it was their free labor force, right? So following the Mm -hmm. Civil War, how can the rich Southerners rebuild their economy without slaves? Well, it's simple. You create a prison population and you use the loophole within the 13th Amendment. So there was a mass incarceration wave of black men post the Emancipation Proclamation. So black men were intentionally and systematically demonized to the point um, that now they're basically born guilty. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, we're just going to find all kinds of reasons um, to throw them in jail, like vagrancy or loitering, and they'd be thrown in prison, and then they were able to be used as slave labor. So they solved their problem. <laughs> you know, right. they got their labor force back, and it's absolutely mind blowing. This is what this is. This is systemic racism. This is what we're talking about. It's that you find every way possible to create laws, to create loopholes for your benefit and for the oppression of these people. You know. Yep. Yep. And those those in those times, a lot of that labor is what was uh, furthering the American economy and making it thrive. You know, uh, I, I read something a while back. It, it was back when, I think, when cotton was kind of booming. And we all know, you know, slavery and people picking cotton and cotton fields and things of that nature. Um, I think it said it was like the 1860 or somewhere around in there um, that the the – the revenue made from the cotton industry was like $200 million or something like that. And then it said the equivalent of that today, this is just from cotton, uh, would be like $5 billion. So imagine if um, that labor was lost because slaves got freed. Think how much money is being taken out of the economy. Right. Because now I now I can't force these people to to do this work for us free of charge. 
Right. And now, now I've just lost that X amount of dollars. Like, wait a minute, that's not going to work for our economy. We got to figure something out here. Right. We got to figure out how to get this money back. And so the loophole is then created. And now you have, let's just incarcerate, like you said, incarcerate, let's demonize this group in the media. Media is a tool. Back then it was newspapers. It was comic strips. It was books. You know, they didn't have the internet and all of that kind of stuff, but they had things that circulate. So they would, they would magnify a story of, you know, make up a story of African-American raping some woman. And then they, they paint this mm-hmm. picture as like a monster or something, you know, or they'll, they'll paint a group of black people and make them look super scary on the paper and be afraid because these are monsters, these are animals, these are criminals. We got to lock them up. We got to control them. And now you get the petty crime. Hey, you looked at my wife. Yes. You know, you looked at my wife sideways or you you touched my wife or you you stole this or you walked across the street and didn't do this. or you drunk out of a you walked into a white restaurant. Now, you now you're in jail again. And now you're forced to do labor based off some petty incidents or something somebody lied on you on. And now you're getting free labor again through the loophole, OK, because now I can't force anybody to do uh, uh, free labor or slave labor unless they're a criminal and they're locked up, then we can use them for free labor, which is the 13th Amendment. Right. right. And, um, and just from, from watching 13th on, on Netflix, I was, you know, a lot of times I'll think things are like way in the past. Um, but there's, there's huge, huge companies today that are still benefiting from this Victoria's Secret, Whole Foods Market, Walmart, Microsoft, mm-hmm. Starbucks, like yeah, this is this is happening now, right? Right. That's because they con- they contract out the work. They contract out the work. I mean, what what kind of work is needed in a prison? If you got everybody locked up, okay, what kind of work are you gonna put them to do? Mop the floors of the prison, you know? Do that? Like, no, you, you you're gonna you're gonna contract out work to people who want to buy the labor, and if they want to buy that labor, Starbucks saying, hey man, we need people to. You know, to I don't know, get our coffee beans or bag our coffee beans up or whatever. Like, okay, well, we got X amount of prisoners here that'll do that. They can do that for you. Mm-hmm. How much are you paying? You know, and then you got all these private owners because most of these prisons are privately owned. So you have private owners that own these prisons, and then they get contracted right. out and- to whatever they want to do. And mm-hmm. and it's a and it's a business. So you're talking about. Yeah. You're talking about doing business with human lives. That's almost the, the the equivalent of human trafficking. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Human trafficking because they're not paying equivalent. the prisoners. I mean, pennies. You know, pennies on the dollar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, man. How, if anybody hears that, I mean, a, a person's heart ought to be like, "Wow, that is completely wrong. We need to change this." But nobody's. Why is this not being been changed? You mean you tell me that all the presidents that come through our presidency over the years didn't know that this was in place and didn't mm-hmm. they didn't fight to change this? It's a business and it it's furthering our economy because they're getting dirt cheap labor in the prisons which is make the whole incentive of okay well let's put more people in prison because if there's not people in this prison then we're losing money so what can we do to get more people in here okay let's just 
That's dopey yeah. from jail. So I, I, I pulled up this this article because I remember hearing that in the show and just the fact that, oh, there's not enough prisoners. And it said, um, this says, private prison sues the state for not having enough prisoners. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. That's, in, that's insanity. Yeah, Golly. And let me ask you guys a question. What what particular race or group uh, makes up the majority of prisons? Is it a trick question? Yeah. Blacks, <laughs> I would think. And Hispanic. So yeah. yeah. I mean, just Black people of color. Yes. Yeah. Minor- minorities. Minorities. But yeah, everybody exactly. commits crimes. Right. Everybody commits crimes. But for some reason, you know, our group, our group and minorities make up the majority and we get the most severe mm-hmm. sentencing, you know, and we get the most, and where, where the police, where do the police uh, patrol and look for crime at? Right. They're, they're patrolling. They're, they're, I, this is just an example. And I, you know, I'm not making this to be a wide, broad statement, but this is my experience. I moved from Duncanville to Arlington last year and um the the neighborhood we live in is it's a mixed neighborhood but it's it's a pretty well-off neighborhood so to speak and as I'm pretty sure it's primarily you know a white neighborhood I've seen some African-Americans here my neighbors are actually African-Americans but it's a pretty you know decent neighborhood it's kind of suburbs I think since I've been here for a year I've personally seen maybe two cop cars drive through here just in my personal experience, two cop cars drive through over a year, a year and some change. Now, in comparison and contrast to when I lived in Duncanville, Southwest Dallas and Oak Cliff, I saw cop wow. cars every day patrolling, driving through our apartment complex, doing things like. And some people can consider that as, oh, they're there to protect and serve. That's a good thing. I don't know if they were there to protect or serve or if they're there looking for criminal mm-hmm. activity so they can lock somebody up. But but they're not driving through this neighborhood over here where I met in Arlington, uh, surveying and patrolling and looking for criminal activity. They're hardly even right. here. And- <laughs> so it's kind of like it's kind of like, well, dang, man, what what do you expect if they're in the, if they're in the minority area more often then they're going to find more people? to lock up it doesn't mean that they're not there's nobody doing criminal activity in these other neighborhoods the police are just never there looking for it right and and i've i've heard this so don't don't quote me on this but i'm i'm pretty sure that i've read that uh the percentage of of crimes are committed by equally you know whites and blacks you know so it's not like um, African Americans are committing a majority of the crimes. It's equal. The difference yeah. is that whites are getting off. They're getting lesser sentences. They're getting probation. You know, they've got better attorneys, so they're getting off scot free. And mm-hmm. and that's not true for African Americans. Right. You know. Right. And so that's why and there's a disparity. To, right. And we all need to do better. So I mean, we we need to stop committing crimes. So obviously that's the thing. Hey, let's do better. Let's let's empower ourselves as a as an African American race. Let's try to make better decisions. 
But man, are we fighting a system that set us up to to almost be prone mm-hmm. to lean that the way, to lean that direction. Oh, for sure. And be involved and be involved in things because of this systemic um, oppression, racism tool that's been used over the history to put us in these tough positions and situations uh, where a lot of that stuff is learned and passed down. And a lot of times people cop out and lean on it and get caught up in the system and now you're trapped. Right. Right. I mean, nobody can can do the research or even listen to the the summary that I gave at the beginning and not and deny you can't deny the fact that these laws took place that these things happened right. you know and I mean, some of those some of those things man like I just I, I listen you know 1962 African Americans can't even be citizens but we live here you know, 19, uh, 1705 slave law, free blacks can't even own, we can't own blacks or employ blacks. So if I'm a free black and I yeah. got a business, I can't, I can't ask you to work with me or for me because you're white. Right. <laughs> you know? How like, crazy is that? Like they're free. They're quote, I'm a free, free. man. <laughs> but even in that being free, when the census came out as a free human being, uh, the African American man is not even considered a full human being. We're three, mm-hmm. we're three fifths of a person. Three fifths of a person. Who? What? What? A, what does that even mean? Like, how do you even? You know what I mean? Like, but see, that's where. Okay, and that's that's where I think that racism isn't an attitude. I mean, it is. And there are there are plenty of people who have an attitude about racism and think that they're better, but. I think that law, the three fifths, was meant to um, water down um, their contribution. You know, like even when they vote or for census and all those kind of things, it keeps the white people um, in power because their vote yeah. means more. Their well, it um, means that it means that too. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. finish no, this well, no, no. Just I was, it. yeah, no, no. Just saying that it's about it's about power. You know, and I think it's a less about an attitude. And that's the problem about right now is so many people are like, well, I'm not racist. So there's not a problem. Or I live in a state and I really don't think that racism really happens. I don't think it's really a problem. And I think they're referring to an attitude of racism. But what they're Mm -hmm. neglecting to look at is the system of racism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is still a thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's definitely that, Brian. I, I I won't I'm not dis I won't disagree with you on that. It's definitely a, a, a attitude of power, a attitude of, of of creating a system to maintain the power and, and and those things too. But if you really dig into this a bit and you kinda really go through this timeline a bit too and think about it in this way, it's it's an attack it's an attack on the identity of a people group. That's where oppression. Yeah. That's where oppression comes in. How do you oppress somebody? You oppress. You oppress them by attacking their identity and who they are, so they don't feel confident. Right. So they don't feel empowered to to do something or to be something. That's how bullies. That's how bullies <laughs> attack other kids. They pick on people and they make them feel like they can't do or be anything or overcome. So they mm-hmm. attack their identity and they make them fearful. Right. So if you attack if you attack a man's identity by saying you're not even a whole man, you're just three fifths of, three fifths of a person. You're black, and black equals not being a full human being. Black equals being an animal. 
black equals being a slave. You're not good for anything, you know, other than working in these fields. And and we need to contain you because you don't know how to live and and you don't know how to act, you know, in a humane way. But we as white America do. Now you now you've now you've crushed the identity of an African man who is already a full man and created in the image of God and has every right to this earth and this land and the right to thrive and prosper, you know, just as much as the next person. But now you've destroyed his identity and you took his name away. So now he doesn't have his original name. He has a slave master name. So now he doesn't even really, he can't even connect to his lineage and his heritage. And now he's whipped and beaten and chained. And now you took his wife and kids away and now they're all separate. You kind of mm-hmm. see the, the identity being torn away right? No. and being de- no. demasculated and oppressed. And so if you look at that side, that there's an intent behind that that's motivated. Uh, it can be it can be motivated by uh, 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 hatred. I mean, because it, it takes a, it takes a, a hard, evil heart to do some stuff like that. Right. You know what I mean? It, I mean, it just does. I don't think I naturally was born to wake up and say, who can I oppress today? <laughs> you know, who can I who can I, you know, whip beat? And, you know, and do pillage and do all these things, too. It takes a little bit of malice and hate and strife and, you know, a little bit of that type of attitude in me to prompt me to do this, do something to another human being like that. And so, again, I'm not disagreeing that it was about power, but I think that was some some underlining uh, heavy motivation of mm-hmm. I just don't like these people. And I want and we're going to oppress them and we're going to use and abuse them and we're going to demasculate them and we're going to destroy their identity and we're going to create another identity for them and portray that to the world and manipulate these people so that they will forever be held down and back. And I think that's what's happening and still happening in mainstream Mm -hmm. culture. I I feel like the people on on top know that if black people are dehumanized or even with when people were talking about wanting to put the wall up and, and everyone that's um, were ripped away from their families, right? Like when we dehumanize them, it's easier to mistreat mm-hmm. people. Um, I, uh, we watched Harriet yeah. yesterday and um, one of the slave owners, I guess, of Harriet was saying, talking about how his dad was talking about them as, as pigs and you can either eat them or sell them. And it was just you know, a way that they were brought up. And for those that don't understand, like what Brian was saying of, you know, it's a, it's about control and power, then talking about people like they're animals, if they don't understand the power, or maybe they don't have power themselves, they can get on board with the, yeah, they're horrible and they're monsters. So I can, I, I can see where both of you are coming mm-hmm. from. All right. Right, and I and I agree with you, Brock. I, I do. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not discounting any of that. Um, uh, for sure, I'm not. Um, yeah, I think we're speaking the same language. We just right. it's just two dot. It's two dynamics to this to this whole thing. And right. that 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 main the main thing though really is the fact that mm-hmm. man, we don't we don't want to relinquish power. We don't want to. We don't want to be overtaken. I think it's a fear of another people group or race group being able to walk on a playing field or even exceed 
even exceed or outperform uh, the majority. And then there's a shift or sway of power and, and, and all that. And the, the fear of that, of that being a possibility is, is kind of what keeps some of these systems in play because that's an unknown territory for America. For sure. To not, mm-hmm. for the majority to not be the majority anymore or for the majority to not be the, the standard. Because there's a, there's a standard that is invisible in America. And that is how much do you fit the description of white America? That's kind of been the standard. It's like the measuring rod is how do you measure up to white America? Because that's where we need everybody kind of to, to sit in order to really seem successful or to seem like you've made it. It's kind of like the, me- the, the measuring rod or the barometer. And that what if that standard was not white America anymore and it was black America? You know, how would that make a lot of people feel? Well, what we'd, if it was we'd lose our advantage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's probably scary for people who have always been in a position of the power. You know, if you if that mm-hmm. make what kind of what you were saying, Brian, that's that's probably fearful in the eyes of, you know, creates fear in the eyes of white America. Like, Man, what if I'm not the majority anymore? What if, what if, you know, what if they rise up and, you know, and then they're angry, which they have every right to be angry, <laughs> like you know, but you know, your analogy last week about the, the race and how if, if life is a race and the white people have set up the rules of this race and then we've given ourselves a head start and we've given people of color, um, hurdles to overcome, you know, obstacles to overcome. Um, we don't want to give away that advantage. We don't want to give away that head start because then we wouldn't win the race <laughs> and we mm-hmm. want to, and we want to keep winning the race, you know? And right. so we're just going right. to keep these systems of racism in place so that we can keep our advantage. And that's wrong. Right. You know, I mean, there's, right. you can't, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> right. I think the heart, the heart, the hard part in this, which is, I think it's beyond, it's beyond an individual person. And I think that's why, you know, Mama's Village and Brian, you and Ann doing these types of things and all the people around the world who are trying to do similar things like you. The hard part of this is that how do we get, <laughs> how do we get America to one, understand that principle? But not just understand it, but get them to say this is not right. We need to change it and then begin to actually change it. That's the I think that's the hard, right. the hard part, because we've already had the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, the the, 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 the prominent people who spoke. out. I mean, we had amazing music. This message has been preached, teached, publicly spoken um marches around this nation i mean you think back through creative arts and music most of the music of the that came out of the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s even today all the music is filled with this same message of man freedom equality these things are going on in our world marvin Gaye making the songs what's going on you know talking about what's going on in the world and segregation and and oppression like this message has been littered throughout our, our nation's history and put out to the masses and everybody and nobody's 
still done anything about it, it's it's like, man, this is such a big task. Right. And a lot has been done already and nothing's, I won't say nothing's changed. There's been some chips. It's almost like chipping a little couple of rocks off a big mountain. Like MLK, I, I look at it like that, like Martin Luther King did some amazing things. And all the people that, that rallied around him and all his team, um, that then the world that kind of got behind him and did it. And he's he's forever memorialized mm-hmm. in the history of America. Right. right. And he and he and he accomplished some th- great things for civil rights movement. But when we compare what he did to the in the grand scheme of the big problem that we're talking about right now, which is systemic racism and the fact that it's still going on today. How much did he really chip off the, the mountain of the problem of systemic racism? Right. Was it a was it a huge chunk or was it just a little small rock? off the mountain and 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 he's memorialized as a hero (laughs) right right but it was just a pebble off the mountain that he chipped off of like man what what more is left to be done in this huge problem right it's it's definitely a way way bigger deeper issue than i think i realized that i think most people realize and and just reviewing the the first part of this podcast you can see that you know and and it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit like finding out that your sweet great grandfather was a bank robber because <laughs> we all want to <laughs> we all want to believe that you know the founding fathers were great these great men and i'm not saying that they all weren't um, but, but the laws that built slavery in this country are interwoven with the creation of whiteness and the construction mm. of our country. And, and I love America, but, but let's not cling to the warm, fuzzy memory or, you know, what we think is our memory of our forefathers at the expense of human lives, you know? Right. And, right. Wow. um, wow. so I was I was talking to your wife Dominique the other day and she suggested that our mamas out there supplement supplement your kids history with black history as well. Don't let them just get all their history from school because our t- our current textbooks are definitely whitewashed for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was going to say I was going to say that too. I was going to say a lot of a lot of this that you that you read off in the timeline is it's probably not found in your local you know <laughs> isd history book right. history book your eighth and grade if it is book. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and, and if it is it's probably just glazed over mm-hmm. it's probably not you know actually mapped out and defined fully defined and expounded upon and so i was gonna definitely say like man look some of this some of these things up research it and just have an open heart i mean i love america uh, i i publicly say that i love america i've benefited from from living in this country you know what i mean and i i you know i don't want to move i don't want to leave i like living here you know but at the same time i can't ignore the fact that man these things are reality in america what what brian what you read off and listened to some of the things we talked about and a lot of those things have affected me and my family uh, and my mom and my mama's mama and, and her mama's mama and all of our my my family, my African-American family. And it's true. And it's still woven into the DNA of America today and into the systems that operate in our country today. And it's still affecting and oppressing the African-Americans today. 
And that's why sometimes you you guys in, that are looking on media and in your streets, sometimes you see some outcries and some outbursts. And when you see that and you see people passionate and expressing themselves and, and angry and frustrated and crying and, and saying they're tired of it, well, that's what that's what they're tired of. They're tired of feeling the effects of systemic racism and oppression and nobody's listening and no change, no change has happened. And, and, and that's why we have to be careful not to judge, but be quick to understand and get an understanding and sympathize and be compassionate and gracious uh, and work towards viewing people as human beings and made in the image of God rather than saying who's right and wrong. Right. All right. Brock, that was amazing. Again, <laughs> thank you so much. So uh, like Brian said, uh, Brock's wife is providing us with some curriculum suggestions to help you teach your kids to have a fuller picture of our history, which includes black history. So that will be in the toolbox. Um, and we just, like I said, we finished Harriet. And I know, you know, I know about the Underground Railroad, but I don't remember her being the first woman to lead an armed military operation in the United States. Like, I, my jaw was on, I was like, that is amazing. Oh. Like, why didn't I hear about that? And maybe it, I did, but if, it, <laughs> if I did, it was a once over and, and just skimmed over. But um, that's like, that's yeah. beautiful. I want to hear some more of that stuff. So I can't wait to dig in myself to that, those curriculum suggestions and teach my own daughter. For sure. For sure. Okay. Awesome. That's going to wrap us up. Thank you, Brock. Thank you, ladies, for doing an amazing (laughs) job. I love you guys. Love you too. Love you, man. (laughs) Don't forget to go check out that toolbox at toolbox.thehappymamavillage.com for mama tips, tools, and resources. Thank you to everyone out there for spending time with us here at the Happy Mama Village today. Check out the show notes for more information about us and how to connect. We would love to hear from you about today's episode and any takeaways or aha moments that have inspired you. Awesome. See you next time. Thank you so much for spending time listening to this episode. I hope that you were inspired from our time together. We want to encourage you to leave a review, subscribe, and share a favorite episode that another mama needs to hear so that she can feel supported as she continues the brave and sometimes lonely journey of motherhood and life itself. By sharing, together we can change lives. If you are feeling overwhelmed and alone on this journey, reach out. We are here to help. Thanks for listening.